and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Wayne Wise. Hey, Wayne, how's it going? Hey, Mav, I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. I've been watching a, a, a lot of movies lately. Um, yeah. I guess you could call them movies. So I'm not sure the <laughs> order of episodes that we're releasing in. So I have, in the last couple of days, seen... Godzilla minus one, and I've seen Madam Web, and I've seen Morbius, all in about a 24, 36 hour period. So, wow. So, so it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting week, but, uh, but I'm doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of those just, counts today. Yeah. One of those yeah. movies counts today. And I wonder if I leave people in suspense as to which one. <laughs> what are you up to? Probably not. I'm not up to anything. I was just making notes on a Batman story that I need to write an article for before we started recording. So, well, I don't need to write okay. an article for you. Spending time making notes for synopsis and, you know, some of that stuff. Just going through going through the story, seeing what it is I yeah. want to talk about. So, I hear the editor that's uh, an asshole. So, yeah. yeah, that's what I hear. I guess um, if I'm not going to, so, so, so that I don't have to edit that out. I'm referring to myself, but the book Wayne's talking about is my book. So so that's what I've been doing this afternoon. So we're here to talk about, we've done any number of shows on monsters over the last five, six years, Uh, but we've never talked about giant monsters. And you mentioned Godzilla minus one, which I saw right before Christmas. And then I saw the black and white edition of it uh, just a couple weeks ago. And it was really good. It's right up there with cocaine bears. One of my favorite movies from last year. And anybody who listens to the show knows that's a serious thing. So but I thought we need to talk about giant monsters that have been around for, you know, quite some time in pop culture. They never seem to completely go away, but the popularity mm-hmm. seems to come and go. And it feels to me like we're the last few years, the American series that have come back with King Kong and Godzilla, the Monarch series. And now mm-hmm. this Godzilla minus one. It just seems like to me, it feels like there's a bit of a resurgence and, and maybe they've just always been there and I'm just feeling that way. But we want to talk about giant monsters. So if we do a monster show, we are contractually obligated to bring back our own recurring guest, our own giant monster, monster Michael Chemers. <laughs> yeah. so, welcome back, Michael. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Mav. I'm always happy to be here. I actually, as you know, never leave here. I just live under the floorboards here at the studio of Vox Podcast. <laughs> And whenever I hear swearing and and drinking, I come out and talk about monsters. Yeah, you're a monster in the closet here at the studio. Exactly. <laughs> so so come out of the closet, Mike, and and talk about oh, monsters. That was very, no, is it very well done. Time? Very well done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we have a, another guest new on the show. Although I've known this guy for twenty some years, and Mike has known him for just about as long. And Mav, you've known him a little bit. For less period of time, but you guys are now 15, co-workers. Yeah. 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 So so Professor Mark Best from Pitt is joining us. He is our Kaiju specialist. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, uh, Wayne and and Mav and Michael. I'm really glad <laughs> to be here. And I have obviously avoided being here for a long time. But finally, finally, finally lured you in with I succumbed to peer pressure, and here I am. Well, when it comes to giant monsters and kaiju, you are my go-to guy and have been for a long time if I need to know anything. So we are going to you. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, well, when Wayne said he wanted to do one, I was just like, 
well, Mark doesn't want to be on the show because he hates us. <laughs> but then it was just like, oh, well, okay, maybe he loves kaiju yeah. more than he hates us. Over, I don't know. Over, over breakfast at Pamela's at Christmas, I used my monstrous wiles to get him on the show. Wait a minute! Uh, I forgot breakfast, breakfast out of this. Swearing. <laughs> you you live under the floorboards. Why would? What? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but Mark you gets a, breakfast. I want breakfast. On our crumb. You said you will get crumbs of our breakfast. So I didn't pay for breakfast if that's any comfort. Oh no! <laughs> I just used my monster wiles. <laughs> okay. So fair enough. So anyway, so giant monsters. How about that? How about that? I saw Godzilla minus one the same week that I saw Napoleon with Joaquin Phoenix. And I was amazed at how similar the two movies were insofar as <laughs> in, insofar as they were scenes of incredible destruction and battles interspersed with a love story. I didn't really care about. Ah, no, okay. I thought that was funny. Huh. I thought that was real. I thought that was going to be really funny. Yeah. And you guys were going to laugh huh. really hard, Yeah, but you huh. did not. Huh. <laughs> I was really invested in the love story in Godzilla minus one. I, to, to me, part of what made the movie work was just the human story as opposed to, I mean, I loved all the giant monster destruction stuff, but the, the human story just completely sucked me in. It, it, to me, it grounded it in a, in a way that felt necessary to me. Well, of so, course it did, but that doesn't so, make as good a joke. So I didn't say it that way. <laughs> so here was the question, because I'm probably the least monster aficionado well, certainly kaiju aficionado. Like there, there are some of them that I watch and I like, and some of them that I'm like, eh, whatever. I haven't seen all of the Monarch movies yet. I've seen some of them, uh, or at least I don't think I have. I'm actually not sure which ones I've seen. But what I do know about the American monster movie fan, or the American giant stomping monster movie fan, is the most common criticism I see. And I'm going. I'm going to include. Things like, you know, the Godzilla movies, the King Kong movies, but also I'm going to go so far as to say like a Jurassic Park or Transformers, like giant stompy creature movies. Usually the complaint is, why are we dealing so much with these humans? I just want to see the stompy, stompy, stompy destruction. And what I found interesting about this movie, about Godzilla Minus One, and we're not just talking about Minus One, we're talking about the entire genre. But what I found interesting about this movie is, this is the first time that I can remember where the casual fan has specifically been invested in the human characters. People are just like, oh, no, like you barely see Godzilla and it's good. And that's not a thing that I usually hear from people. It's interesting you'd say that because I think there's a really simple explanation for the difference here and why this film is so much more popular. And that's because typically it's good. So much of the history of these movies Going back to 1954, uh, the human story is stupid. That's true. Uh, or mm, very true. I, and yeah, I have a, yeah. I have, I personally have a great tolerance for the human stories in these films because I really love them and I like the, the goofy human stories. But lots of people don't because they are mm-hmm. goofy and kind of boring and not especially compelling characters. They're often very sort of cardboard cutout, uh, two dimensional characters and i think the legendary films were uh, uh especially bad for that more recently mm-hmm. so minus one is really this exception that um has which i think is why both fans and uh 
sort of mainstream audiences really like it is the characters are likable they're interesting they are they're uh, engaging they're funny we have they're it's they're it's depressing i laughed i cried you know I, so i think <laughs> so i think that's i think that's a big difference here what sets well, this film apart film apart yeah i agree i'm gonna i'm gonna have a step back and, and Mark, I'm going to put you on the spot just for our listeners who might not be as invested or whatever. Just you know, brief history of these giant monster genre. Uh, let, let's about you mentioned Godzilla in 1954, but you know, what can you tell us about the giant monster as story concept? Okay, well, it's a good thing <laughs> I have my giant monster timeline in front of me in case I need to get really minute with. I just, I just assume you have that as wallpaper in your house. <laughs> so, yeah, the starting point generally is King Kong, which is not on my timeline. So was it 1938, 39? 33. 33. Okay. Thank you. Which, and then you have the, like, the various feature feature films of the 1950s made by Hollywood. But then you know, Gojira in 1954 is the, the real, really important moment uh, after King Kong. So inspired by King Kong, inspired by other 50s Hollywood films, um, and, and inspired by actual nuclear tests in the Pacific. But after the, the seriousness of the first film, the, the uh, giant monster movies in Japan, kaiju films made by Toho, uh, tend to be increasingly aimed at younger audiences. Godzilla fairly quickly turns into a more heroic figure protecting the earth as opposed to a metaphor for lots of different things. Gamera comes around along from Dai Studios in the mid 1960s, which is which initially begin as sort of typical or stereotypical the giant monster movie, but then turns very rapidly into straightforward children's entertainment aimed at increasingly younger children, like really little kids. Thus Gamera is you know friend of children and often works alongside kids to fight giant monsters and save the earth and the like. And by the 1980s, as the Godzilla series continues, beginning in the mid-80s into the 1990s, Godzilla takes on more of the role of a force of nature, a sort of just a, a natural mutated threat that, that has to be dealt with by the, by the Japanese military or whatever it might be. 1990s, you have three Gamera films released between 1995 and 1999 that are very typical in the genre conventions, but are extremely popular, extremely influential, really brilliant in the way they sort of utilize the giant, the, the traits of the giant monster movie. I just mentioned that because these are my favorite films ever. And then No Godzilla with Ferris Bueller? Oh, yeah, I could say a lot more about that, but I won't. Then in the 2000s, you have a lot of unusual experimentation in Japan with giant monster movies, as well as some like mainstream Godzilla stuff still being released. In the teens, things sort of taken over by Legendary as far as consistent releases of Godzilla films, with some unusual exceptions like Shin Godzilla in Japan in 2016, which is really critically important and now Godzilla minus one as well as the oddball things like like a Gamera animated series that was released on Netflix last year and other just yeah odd stuff like that 
So that's a very overly yeah. simplistic over, overview of these films. Yeah. And, and this, dear listener, is why we invited Mark onto the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, I mean, Mark's summary of Godzilla films and their ilk is invaluable as always. But of course, I do want to point out that giant monsters have been part of popular culture since very ancient times. In fact, one of the earliest stories that we still have the surviving from the Sumerians is the story of how Marduk, the the hero god, fights Tiamat, who is a sort of a chaos monster and eventually makes the world out of her body. And she's a giant monster. And then you have tons of giant monsters in the Bible, Leviathan, Behemoth, you know, dragons of various kinds, you know. And then in the Greek era, tons of giant monsters, absolutely chock-a-block of giant monsters destroying the world, right? Coming in and destroying a city or, you know, mm-hmm. so, so this probably notion of probably just someone saw like a squid, you know, <laughs> like there's, yes. you know, there's a, cause yeah. I, I mean, if you think about it's like the Odyssey has, you know, Silum Cryptus and Krakens exactly. and, you know, probably mm-hmm. just an octopus. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, or just, you know, I always that's so funny that you mentioned that, Mav, because I always think about when people look for real world antecedents to monsters. I always think to myself, you know, what's wrong with mm-hmm. just imagining it out of whole cloth, you know, still in mm-hmm. or maybe just taking some hint of something from the environment and blowing yeah. it up in a way of expressing the small the real, that he real Dracula, feel. but they, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to giant monsters, it's about the way, it's about the smallness that, that humans feel, you know, that we, it's like Mark was saying, Godzilla is a force of nature. And we really recognize that despite our dominance of the planet, we can still get wiped out pretty easily. We are not big creatures. We're little creatures. Right. And so I think it's a way of expressing that mm-hmm. fear. Right. That gets mixed up, of course, in the twenties and thirties with atomic energy and the testing and that reminds me of another film that came out in 1956 which was called them you guys know this film them mm-hmm. it takes place in alamogordo right after the atomic bomb testing and it's giant ants a mutated yeah. ants mm-hmm. come and destroy everything and it's a wonderful film it's a murder mystery well and and just to throw in another piece of the, the history going to the comics thing in the 1950s comics were just you know Full of giant monsters. The Comics Code limited what you could do with vampires and zombies and werewolves, and you just you couldn't use those sort of things anymore. But you know, kids still love their you monsters. Have a hill so, that walks like a man. Right? Yeah, we had just issue after issue, particularly at Marvel, although different companies did it, of mm-hmm. giant monsters coming up out of the earth to to attack people. Monsters from alien planets coming to attack, and you know, gradually that turned into what we think of as the Marvel Universe. It was certainly a forerunner for the superhero genre that came up in the early 1960s. You know, the first cover of Fantastic Four has them fighting a giant monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hulk is essentially an irradiated superhero version of a giant monster. He is a force of nature and wrath unleashed by radiation. So we just we had a ton of that sort of thing. The lovable group from Guardians of the Galaxy that everybody just adores. First appearance was 1959, I believe. Okay, and, he's he's and kind he of gorgeous was, too. Yeah, yeah. He was you know the monster from Planet X, and he was a giant space alien who appeared to take over the Earth. And he okay. talked back then. Yeah, and oh, then you know, he, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Blue- he, is the one who's defeated, if I'm not mistaken, he's defeated by a scientist 
who looks a lot like Clark Kent and whose girlfriend makes fun of him for not joining the soldiers out on the front lines instead of working on his lab to <laughs> come up with some sort of some sort of of way to defeat Groot, which he does, mm-hmm. and then she has to recognize that he is in fact the real man in this scenario, even though yeah. he's a geek who reads comic books. These examples you're mentioning, these examples you're mentioning all point to, especially in the 50s, and them is a really great example of that, of, of also just Cold War anxieties. And while on the one hand, mm-hmm. radiation and things like that just worked as a sort of a, I'm blanking on the word I, I'm looking for, but just as, as an excuse to create monsters or, yeah, to create monsters because we like monsters. Nonetheless, these films could be really handle these ideas really seriously so them you mentioned that michael the them is a, is a murder mystery the ants in them are described by the scientists in the exactly the same language that popular media at the time was describing communists in the soviet union um, oh yeah so no question it's it's clearly uh, just a fairly straight that film in particular is clearly a fairly straightforward translation of cold war fear of the soviet union onto giant monsters. In other cases, it's maybe more tenuous. And of course, Godzilla is the most famous where it's all kinds of metaphorical stuff going on there. Yeah, there's no question that them is an anti-communist screed. It may also be, I've read some scholars that suggest that them is also anti-Semitic in the days when Jews and communists were being conflated in the American mind. Hmm. That's very interesting. I've seen it, but yeah. Leonard Nimoy's in it. Yeah, it's a huge cast here. But anyway. Well, Michael, I want to go back to something you said earlier about giant monsters of the ancient world. And I really love your your point about why can't we just imagine these things? Yeah. And I agree. I don't think they have to be based on or inspired by real life stuff. We like the idea of monsters and giant monsters are a great way to express our smallness. Like you said, you specifically stated that as fear, the sphere of scale of our smallness in contrast to the things that are gigantic and uncontrollable. Yeah. So why not translate that into living creatures in myths or and other stories? But along the same lines, as, the, as part of that is the, the fact that we also really enjoy uh, and take pleasure in this fear yes. and this, the destruction that comes yes. along with this. I mean, we love the stories. We especially love the frightening stuff that they do. And of course, I mean, Susan mm. Sontag's essay, The Imagina- Imagination of Disaster, goes into this in length and way oh, yeah. back. But uh, that, I mean, for me, that just reminds me, and I don't want to get too philosophical here in this drinking a swear in context but <laughs> you, just, you can be as philosophical as you, you want as long as you drop the f-bomb once in a while okay yeah, it, just bring it, of, it just reminds me of the fucking sublime you know the idea of the sublime where you on the one hand this 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 profound emotional reaction where on the one hand you feel your smallness typically in in confrontation with nature you feel your smallness but you also take great pleasure in the in the grandeur and the scope of the gigantic whether it's you know the grand canyon or a, a a deep and remote forest or the ocean or maybe giant monsters uh on on films and, so, and, and some of that certainly appeared in godzilla minus one you know, the city is being destroyed around them and instead of running people are just standing there in awe of this thing standing in their midst yeah 
Well, that's just the thing we do, though, right? So that's a that's part of Sontag's point is that there is uh, there's a spectacle of destruction that I'm going to take it away from monsters, just a volcano. Right. Or or an earthquake or something. You know, once you get to the point where you're personally safe, you kind of want to watch the house burn. You know, as long as it's not your house, you're like, oh, wow. It's just amazing to just like so pictures on Instagram last week or two weeks ago. (laughs) Right. Well, I know on my Instagram, I posted pictures there. We don't know how, but somehow. One of my neighbors, you know, basically across the street and three doors down, their car exploded during the middle of the night, not middle of the night. It was like 9 p.m. And so we hear this big boom. And I and I, you know, I was I asked my wife, did you hear that? She's like, yeah, yeah I heard it. What was that? So I, I was like, it sounded like an explosion. And I went outside just to check and it's like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, there, there was an explosion. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I'm like, we should call 911 because there's a fireball on the middle of the street. You know. A hundred feet from me, hundred. Was it a, you know, maybe a little more, hundred, hundred fifty. Was it a Tesla? But no, it was actually it was a gas, gas-driven BMW. It was a, it was just a, it was not an electric car, not a, but it just it blew up, and it was there was fire, and everyone in the neighborhood's just kind of out. Now the guy who owned the car, you know, he was kind of distraught, but everybody else was just like. Okay, let me move my car down the street, and mm. now let mm. me take out my cell phone and film this for Instagram. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like neighbors yeah. just going. Like that, well, there is. There's, there's watch the fire said. department put it out. You know. Yeah, and there is. There's something to be said for the catharsis of watching tragedy from a safe distance. You know, there's. You know, yeah, I didn't want to be close it, to it, but what's that? Right. I was pretty I sure. Mean, I was, there, <laughs> there, there are famous stories of you know Civil War, Battle of Bull Run, of, you know people in the nearby mm-hmm. town packing picnic lunches and going up on the hillside to watch, yeah. sitting yeah. on the hill and watching people die. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as long as it didn't affect them. Yeah, the Romans you know, called that. You know, just that that spectacle. Gaudium certamen. Mm-hmm. I'm throwing so some. Is I'm there some a... Latin in there? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a thing with, so if we accept, and it's pretty universally accepted that like part of the, specifically the Godzilla myth is, you know, a direct reaction to worries of the atomic bomb, which at the time of creation, Japan had very good reason to worry. And that's sort of, it's it's very evident in, in, in minus one. So if we accept that the, those movies aren't just popular in Japan, those movies are popular everywhere. And is it because you know, we don't want to talk about the directly about the oh yeah, we dropped this bomb on people and killed millions of people. That's kind of a bummer, but it is sort of okay to reckon with that if we can look at it through the eyes of giant stompy monster. That's fun, you know. Yeah, yeah. like he's stigmatizing well, a little bit. I guess. Certainly now, you know, any, any post nine eleven world where we've seen giant buildings topple to the ground. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, no, it, I would it argue that's... very modern fears as well. I would argue Mev, that's one of the primary uh, functions, social functions of monsters is to present us with the possibility of having our deepest anxieties manifested and then defeated. Right. Because at the end of Godzilla, they defeat him. And at the end of the second one, they defeat him again, mm-hmm. but he keeps coming back. Right. Because the source of the okay. anxiety is not eliminated. Right. So the monster comes back because the monster is generated by this anxiety. But I do think that this is a, uh, that we, as Mark said, we love to be scared. We love to be, uh, be right. thrilled, right? 
And I think it's because it's very therapeutic and it helps us sort through the difficulties of living on this planet, you know, as damaged as it is, but all the way back to the ancient times as well. Okay, but like Mark, your timeline points out that pretty early on, both Godzilla and Gamera both eventually just become our friends, right? So like why right. like do we want to friend the bomb? Do we want to friend the volcano? Like what's it's maybe because we these, do, right? Maybe because, no, it's because these monsters are flexible enough that they can mean lots of different things. So when yes. anxiety or rather trauma of uh, based on the atomic bomb after the end of the World War begins to fade, then these incredibly popular characters, monsters, can become other things. They can mean other things. And that can range from really serious, like in the 2016 Shin Godzilla film, which is a, basically about the failure of Japanese bureaucracy in the face of the typhoon and the ensuing disaster, uh, Fukushima disaster. So that film is a very serious take on that. But then... Um, Godzilla versus Kong, legendary pictures is is just we just want to see these two monsters beat each other up and then team up with each other. So going back to Wayne's superhero analogy, we like Godzilla, we like Kong, we want to see him fight. We want one of them to be the king of the monsters. Spoiler, it's Godzilla. But we like Kong because Kong knows sign language and he's adorable. And, <laughs> and so they've got to join forces against something else. And it's just fun. It's mm -hmm. just fun and silly. It's yeah. less about anxieties and more about about the spectacle of destruction and well, taking pleasure in that. Well, yeah. and your your point on the flexibility of the characters in the genre, I think, is important. I mean, another piece of Godzilla minus one that I really loved was once again this comes back to the human story, but we saw an entire nation going through survivor's guilt in that movie mm -hmm. post you know, post World War Two. You know, two cities had been blown off the map. It's an entire mm -hmm. culture that valued the idea of an honorable death. I mean, you know, the main character is a kamikaze, and the fact that he didn't sacrifice himself in a meaningless death made him a pariah and an outcast, and in many ways a traitor to the ideals of Japan. And what we saw in this movie was mm -hmm. an entire group of people who had survived the war coming to the realization of, oh, that honorable death thing is stupid. So it was, you know, it was not only the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was the destruction of centuries of culture. culture. And we saw that playing out with these people and the young person in the movie who wasn't in the war and felt left out and he hadn't had the glory. And all of the veterans are like, hey, dumbass, sit down. You, know, that you don't know what you're talking about. Be glad you didn't go through this. Be glad you now live in a world where you don't have to do this. And I, that whole piece of it I found really profound and moving and just seeing an entire culture deal with a change in their entire culture. I, I'm going to tweak that slightly. And the, and the cult, as far as changing the culture, I would say the idea of uh, an honorable death, we're talking maybe a couple decades in this particular instance of like regular rank and file soldiers who are who have been starved uh, abused and basically expected to sacrifice themselves often in completely irrational for irrational reasons basically coming out of the war seeing that this was a this is a bad idea and that that honorable death is traditionally may not have you know, pertained to you know just people like this because it, because the what's the, the people that are inflicting it upon them are their own 
superiors, their own mm-hmm. leaders. And so you have very powerful anti-war films set during the Second World War coming out in in Japan in the 1950s. And I think, but I think you're absolutely right with this film. So, so basically, I, certainly not a new idea. These these issues are explored in Japanese cinema immediately mm-hmm. after the war. But in the movie Fires on the Plane is one that comes to mind. And as a side note, the main character in that film, a survivor who has sort of been given a hand grenade by his, he's sick and he's given a hand grenade by his superior officer and told to go off and and blow himself up because he is otherwise useless. And instead he wanders around and encounters all kinds of other atrocities. That actor playing that role went on to play a scientist character in the first Gamera film 10 years later. That's my, that's my pointless footnote for today. That's not pointless. Yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah, significant. Yeah, and I, I sure, yeah. But you're yeah. right about, but, but minus one, the survivor's guilt, the PTSD, mm. the found mm. family theme. I think all of those mm. things add up to making these characters interesting. Going yeah. back to our very first comment about why do people like this film? Hey, this film is very deftly and skillfully dealing with these kinds of issues. I mean, the film is profoundly anti-war or yeah. all of the destruction mm-hmm. that, that we see. The actual war between nations is, is not is slammed in this film. Yeah. Well, and I certainly didn't mean to imply that something that has never been addressed in, in media prior to this, you know, oh, obviously. I that. No, uh, I know you. Yeah. yeah. It just, it's something that just really struck me. And the, I mean, very you know, specifically the, the the training and indoctrination of the Japanese soldiers, you know, World War II era. But you know, that comes out of a long history of shogunate Japan and the samurai culture and the daimyo, yes. who you know, people just you know, owed their life to the daimyo of their precinct or whatever. So yeah, so I you know, I don't know that it was drawn into every person who who lived there, but it was certainly. A defining aspect of, of Japanese culture, and and you know, you go back to that. You know the the shogun had ended what the Meiji Restoration was what eighteen fifty seven. If I'm pulling that out of my head correctly, and you know, they were a closed society yeah, prior to that. They you know, just you know, their interaction with the outside world was really limited, and pretty much from the Meiji Restoration up until World War Two, there's the story of. Japan's culture coming into contact and conflict with outside forces in a way that it hadn't for centuries. Also, very, 68. Very, I was like, if you did that, if you did that just out of your head, I was going to be like, I was going to be so amazed. I was like, but also very strong Western influences and Westernization. And yes, so, which Imperial Japan in the years leading up to the Second World War worked really hard to eliminate and downplay in favor of the traditional values you're describing. Mm -hmm. But there's that, there is that Westernization where these soldiers are not samurai, you know, thousands of of young Japanese men who basically, you know, would otherwise be expected to just sort of get jobs and raise families and the like. They're not samurai. They are. And they're, and again, I think the the worst thing, the, 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 one of the biggest differences is that they are, that the abuse is actually is absolutely coming from their 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 own superiors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's important if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about that, you're talking about you know a crisis of masculinity, which I don't think is limited to the Japanese yeah. culture. We sort of look at things like 
the samurai to the pipeline from the samurai to the kamikaze pilot as though this is this weird orientalism you know this weird othered culture but that's the crisis of american masculinity too there's a lot yeah. of you know, if you want to if you want to put that in 2024 one could argue that the crisis of masculinity explains a lot of the men's rights movement the andrew tates of the world the people who eventually become you know shooters of churches and stuff like that and i mean that you know it is not simplistic but there are many arguments that you know we've talked about on our shows about masculinity before so you know, it's funny you should bring that up man because i was just when i was doing some preliminary background drinking to prepare for this this <laughs> podcast i came across i was looking at radiation related science fiction films from the 50s and i came across one from 57 called the incredible shrinking man and I had not yes. been, a, yeah, classic film, right? But I had not actually been aware of this. I know that film. <laughs> yeah, which, which directly influenced the first appearance of Hank Pym, who went on to become Ant-Man. Yes. Oh, no kidding. Okay. There was a well, yeah, but, short Marvel story featuring Hank Pym, where he, he shrunk himself down and interacted with ants before he was a superhero. Oh, no kidding. Well, so, but the reason I bring it up is because this is a story about the dissolution of the American family, the, nu- the American nuclear family, if you will because of radiation affecting this, the stature, the literal stature of the head of the family, the patriarch of the family, right? Who shrinks down and, and becomes emasculated even as he becomes smaller, right? And he finally becomes like a toy for his wife. And then, you know, his, his wife is just moving him around and, and stuff like that, you know? So this is a, a fear of... He lives in a, he lives in a doll's house, a doll house a, for a while. He lives in a doll house, yeah. And right. I, there's a one point when he arms himself with a nail against the cat that's coming after him that he says, I finally mm-hmm. felt like a man again, you know, and I, I think so. This notion of the fear with, with, with a giant nail attacking the pussy, but I think that, you know this notion of the, uh, the the threat of modernity to the the supremacy of the nuclear family as it was conceived in those days is actually goes all the way back to the fifties. Well, Mark, I know you've done work on that with comic stuff, the, the masculinity in the fifties, and you know, I mean. So going back to the Hulk, you know, Banner is this weak, physically weak, you know, uh, put upon scientist, brilliant, but not seen as a man by Thunderbolt Ross and, and the army around him. And and then he's the Hulk. So, you know, and there's any number of you know, scientists in comics in, in that era who you know, play out that that idea. Well, that's why I, that goes right back to the Groot example, where it's. Yeah. This sort of val- with that story is a validation of the scientist nerd in contrast to mm. soldiers that his and the, and the other military men that his wife is or girlfriend is basically making fun of him because he's not out there fighting the giant monster. He's inventing something. So, so it's very much a part of the 50s crisis in masculinity in the United States. So, the Incredible Shrieking Man example is an interesting much more pessimistic take on the same issues. Whereas this Groot story is, I think, much more optimistic. And the, the guy with the glasses who looks like Clark, Clark Kent is validated. And boy, if it turns out that it's not the Groot story and it's something else, I'll be really embarrassed. But I'm pretty sure it's the Groot story. <laughs> it's Groot. So, this is that issue number 12? Yeah. <laughs> now, if you pull that right out of the air... Uh, oh, I'm yeah. wrong. I'm 13. I was pretty close. Yeah, you it's close. number 13. 
Yeah, 19, November 1960. It. It's number yeah. 13. I just looked at that cover when I was writing up the blog for this. And, you yeah, know, so dude. many of the early he's Marvel not He's gray were... on the cover. I misremembered. He's, yeah. he's a giant gray tree at that point. Yeah, and, you know, so many of the <laughs> early Marvel heroes in their secret identities were scientists. You know, we have Reed Richards and Tony Stark and Bruce Banner. And, and well, Donald Blake was a doctor. doctor yeah, but um, the same thing. He was and, a weak little yeah. nerd. He was yeah, a little nerd yeah, he, 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 right. with a disability, right? Mm-hmm. But secretly, he was actually this yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Hank, Hank Pym, you know, with Ant Man and then Giant Man. So yeah, mm-hmm. so just yeah, Spider Man, you know, fifteen year old, you know, student who was able to build web slingers and this super sticky web fluid, you know, because he's a brilliant scientist at fifteen. So that that played a part in all of that stuff. When you get into examples well, like it, like uh, Peter Parker, then there we have the instead of the, the more typical contrast between sort of idealized masculinity represented by Superman or Batman and the inferior masculinity of Clark Kent. Uh, when you get to Peter Parker, it's just like, hey, being being a man is just being a, a teenage man or a college age man is just really tough. So, it's like yeah. it just sucks. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Wayne, this is my first time on the podcast. Wayne, do you always manage to like shift things into a total conversation around superheroes? Yeah, that's my role. Uh, that's my role. Uh, now we just have to wait until Mav on, makes it all the way. I can't do it. If Hannah were here, and Hannah's not here today, but like, and I don't have the background, but she would have, you know, we're. 30, 40 minutes into the show, she would have found some way to get us to talk about Victorian literature at this point. Like, there's, I don't know enough of the references, but I'm sure there's a Dickens thing that fits in here somewhere. <laughs> and <laughs> Hannah would have. Uh, it's Kaiju. Is it Jack, Jack on Hyde? Jack on Hyde. Yeah, it's not Dickens. Well, Jack on Hyde, yeah. certainly. Well, I think yeah, still yeah. with the, you know, the crisis of masculinity, which is where I think this is interesting, we've got, you know, those. You're all of your early science heroes, your early science heroes of the Silver Age are very much a response to uh, Michael Kimmel would say this, I believe, in his book. It definitely. And I well, certainly all my work, I say it, but, uh, but it's a response to the classic masculinity being effectively useless in the modern and postmodern world, right? We don't need someone who can go slay a beast and bring it home for dinner. It's just not a useful skill. We have supermarkets now, right? Like we don't like, like the increasingly gun culture grows around the, around the idea of no, I can still be tough. I can carry a gun around. Why you're not hunting anything. You're, you know, you live in the city. This is a useless thing, but the proof of masculinity becomes a function. And I think that, your science hero is a move to say, look, I can be a masculine protector with these sciencey skills, with this new world skill. So Peter Parker can be a nerd, but can still be a real man. You know, we're, these comics are coming out at a time with Charles Atlas ads like being on every other page right. saying, you know, yeah. you know, don't kick sand in my face, that face. I'm a real man, too. And I think that's kind of what Peter is. It's what Hawkman is. Yeah. It's well, what the Flash is. Well, to and bring this, talking, you can use that to defeat a giant monster, a giant kaiju, yeah. well, which is to bring it back you know, to our, our bring it back to our reference to you, the, the Japanese culture and, and definition to masculinity there. You know, all of this is response to the cultural concept of what masculinity is which is 
determined mm-hmm. by this monolithic structure, which is, I'm going there, a giant yeah. monster. So, you know, that reminds so that, me yeah. of the, well, that reminds me of the movie the Peter Jackson, King Kong, that came out in the 90s, aughts, I think, aughts, beautiful film with Naomi Watts. And there's really a, there's a love triangle in that film between Naomi Watts, the monster, and, and Adrian Brody, right? And Adrian Brody is kind of a nerdy, you know, shallow chested artistic type. And like, there's no way he can be as masculine as Kong, you know? I mean, look at Kong. Kong can defeat Tyrannosaurus Rexes that are trying to kill her and, and all these things. And, you know, Adrian Brody can't do that. You know, but she winds up with Adrian Brody because Kong is too, he's just too much. He's just too much. Well, he's literally a monkey. I mean, but, well, so that's a question, though, that I have, right? Like, if yeah. you're, okay, fine, eight. But yeah, is the argument of these films, because like, there's usually a female character. If you go back to King Kong, right? Twas Beauty Tame the Beast, right? Like, it, the original King Kong is even, in a sense, a love story between, the Hollywood starlet du jour and, you know, this untamable, super masculine stereotype. The 2005 film maybe tries to reconcile that a bit, but like there's a lot of, you know, little girls singing to Gamera throughout this, (laughs) you know, throughout, throughout this genre where I feel like there is sort of a celebration of, the feminine fits in with this world in some ways better than the failed masculine does. That uh, makes I sense. That's, uh, my cue to bring in Mothra. Uh, no, no, no. I said Gamera, but yes, Mothra. Yeah. Mothra. Yes, Mothra is better. I Mothra, that. So Mothra is when gendered, eventually Mothra was is established as typically female that has two priestesses of varying heights, but usually pretty small. So, yeah, I think, I don't know if it's a, a case of fits better or not, but Mothra has typically been depicted much more strongly as a protector, as a defender. In the Obviously, in the first film, that's not entirely the case, but it's but Mothra's actions are much more, are much, much more justified in the first Mothra film in 1961. And then going into the 60s, as the films become a, a, a lot more silly and fun, sillier fun, maybe a better way to say it, <laughs> we take on the role of of literally sort of diplomatically trying to get monsters to s- stop fighting each other and fight the real threat or the like. But so Mothra is this sort of feminine defender and protector, very consistent, and who, who almost always sacrifices herself, or frequently, not always, but frequently sacrifices herself, and then a couple of larvae, of uh, gender-vague larvae sort of finish the job so so i think it's a really interesting contrast and i don't know if it's an issue of the failure of the masculine as much as it is that there is a easily overlooked feminine through line in all of these films there are always almost always prominent female human protagonists in the gamma films like you you mentioned that there are girls although the girls often don't get to go on the same adventures that the boys go on they're sort of they're the ones who are stuck at home <laughs> to uh, you know make excuses for the boys or to not be believed by the grown-ups when they say, "Oh, my brother and his friend were taken away in a flying saucer," you know, or things like that. 
But yeah, the in the 1980s and 90s Godzilla films, one consistent character through the across the films was uh, was a young Japanese woman who had psychic powers. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's I think it's a really interesting thing to to point out that, that women do have significant roles in all of these films, and often depending on how lame the human story is, the female characters will be just as non-compelling as the male characters. The first legendary the Godzilla equality, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Really bad. The legendary Godzilla film is a, is a great example of that, and I know Michael has opinions about is it Godzilla, which is the one with the ecolog- the environmental scientist turned environmental turned eco terrorist. Oh, that's King the one the with um, that's King of the Monsters, I believe. Yeah, I monsters, do have a, yeah, okay. have a, yeah, yeah. It's just 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 horrible, horrible. Female really terrible. Just, yeah. yeah yeah. So yeah, but uh, but they're always there. They're always there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Destroy All Monsters. It's one of my favorites. My, it's in favorites. 1968, <laughs> the villains in that for the alien invaders who are controlling the monsters are, are these these ladies in like shiny, glittery uh, bodysuits who, when they are defeated, turn into their other their other form, which is rocks, <laughs> just stones on the ground. Wow. So, you know. <laughs> this is great stuff. What a genre this is! So, 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 so they're wearing <laughs> silvery outfits, so they're kind of glam rocks. Like- oh my god! I quit. That's it. I'm never yeah. coming back. <laughs> There's a movie that I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't watched yet. It's a uh, within the last six or seven years. It's a comedy kaiju film, Hollywood film about a woman who somehow or other is psychically tied to a giant monster oh yeah and so like her actions her everyday life actions basically influence the kinds of destruction that this and I'm, i may be misrepresenting this film because i haven't seen no, it that's right i think it starts with it and so there's this a film that, I don't know that it plays with these ideas as literally as possible is in this what's the film it's um, uh, colossal Colossal, yes. Colossal, 2016. That sounds fascinating. Uh, Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway, yeah. Wow. I don't... How do I not remember this movie? This seems like a thing I should know. I... This is my thing. This genre is my bag, and I still haven't seen it, so what do I know? It's described on Wikipedia as... Anne Hathaway, Jason Sudeikis, Dan... How do I... How have I not seen this movie? (laughs) It's described as Godzilla meets Lost in Translation. (laughs) <laughs> which I don't know is a particularly I, great selling point there. 81%, 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, I'm watching this. This is amazing. <laughs> I don't know this film. Yeah, Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis. That's the only, this, is, this is absolutely astounding. Okay, yeah, I'm watching this. <laughs> we might have to do an episode of Is This a Good Movie? I don't know if it's a good movie or not, but it's getting 81%. That, that implies it's good, right? Somebody you know, like, like this. I have no recollection of this coming out. $3 million, earned $3 million in the United States and Canada, $4.5 million international total. This is amazing. So, yeah, this is, how do I not know about this film? Wow. <laughs> Hell. Yeah, we've stumped the experts today. $15 million, $15 million budget, $4.5. So, yeah, so, so no, this bomb grows $4.5 million worldwide on a $15 million budget, only $3 million in the States. No one saw this. 
<laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's 2016. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check this out. Well, we've stumped the experts today on Vox Popcast. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not an expert. Just, I love when a movie comes out that I don't, I don't know. That five minutes of astonishment is brought to you by <laughs> Vox Popcast. Yeah. <laughs> Are we still speaking uh, about masculinity? Well, masculinity yeah, masculinity. Sure, sure. Because sure. when Mark was talking, it just made me think about the, the racialized tropes that are available to anyone who's breaking apart King Kong, you know? And I'm thinking particularly of the 1930s, mm-hmm. 19, 1933. You know, yes. you go to, you, you've got these white colonizers, they go to Africa, they steal a person, and they bring him back to downtown New York in chains. And then he runs amok and steals it all. It is the, not subtle. It's not subtle. He runs amok and steals the women, right? The women like him better. So mm-hmm. it's a tremendously racist, I think, anxiety that, that is embodied in King Kong. And I don't think King Kong, oh, yeah. I don't think King Kong ever gets away from that. Honestly, even in the legendary films, I still think that there's still that, that racialized subtext that's still available, you know, and as much as they try to quash it, it's still there. Well, it's like, I mean, it's like a Tarzan, right? Like, there's nothing you can do to the inherent idea underneath is just racist. Yeah. And you can try and do something interesting with it, but it's just got to be that. Like, I've heard people argue that, well, Tarzan doesn't have to be racist. The same thing happened with uh, with the argument about Iron Fist. Well, you could make it not racist by putting an Asian person in. Like, But then it's not the thing, right? Like, I, I think there's an... There is an aspect of King Kong that is it, it, that story is just fear of the otherwise black man, yeah. like being more appealing to white women. That's what the story is. And, yep. and there's nothing. I mean, you can tell it well, you can tell it poorly, but that's what the story is. Yep, I think so. I think I think, I think the legendary, the context of the legendary pictures, pictures, Kong, version of Kong. It was so, some serious effort to work around that which surprised me mm. except he had to read comic books to get any of that <laughs> so really? backstory backstory with a much more much broader explanation of why this you know, why this why kong is on this island named skull island and things like that mm. which fleshed out and actually did a pretty good job of 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 getting away from all of that but Who's reading comic books? You know, but the also question is who's thinking of it in these terms? The nineteen thirty three film, it's it's impossible to not think of it that way, and it's this is the way it's been written about through most of the history of people writing about that movie. But one of my biggest questions going into Kong Skull Island is how are the quote natives unquote on the island going to be depicted? Like, what's what are they going to be mm-hmm. like? What is their relationship to Kong going to be like? But yeah, and that was. It was not the it was worst. 2017, and I can't remember. <laughs> it was not the it worst. worse. It could have been a lot worse. I think in the Peter Jackson film, there was much worse. And the the yeah. the one from the 80s with, who was in it? Jessica Lange. That was terrible. Yeah. Oh, those are just terrible. Yeah. yeah. But this one was actually, the natives were really cool. They were psychic. They lived in harmony with Kong. They never spoke or anything. And the only guy who could understand them was this, the, oh, I can't think of his name. He's a comic actor. Yes, yeah. This World War II pilot that had been crashed there, who had been stuck there and sort of Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam era think. pilot. No, because they were just coming from Vietnam. So he was a World War II okay. era pilot. Right. Yeah. Korea, maybe? maybe? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know, but he, was, he had been marooned there with a Japanese <laughs> pilot and they had become friends. Oh, then it's World War II. Yeah. 
it's yeah, World it's War been II. a while, so I guess I have to rewatch yeah. it. No, you're right. You're right. It, it would be World War II. I've just, I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah. Yeah. What's that guy's name? He's always in movies with Will Smith. He was in Talladega Nights. <laughs> not Will Smith. Oh, Martin Lawrence? No, not, not Will Smith. I'm sorry, not Will Smith. Will Ferrell. Uh, Will Ferrell. Oh, Will Ferrell. oh. C. Thomas Howell? No. John C. John no, Riley. Riley. John yeah, C. Riley. John C. Riley. John C. Riley. Right, right, right. Yep. Oh, boy, we're batting a thousand today. I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> Have we solved well, anything? Okay, so we're talking about the legendary films, and uh, one thing I've heard is I've seen people... Actually, somebody said this to me. I can't remember who it was or when, but uh, you know, talking about how great Godzilla minus one is and how much everybody loves it, and then Godzilla X Kong: The New Empire coming out. What maybe as early as the end of March? I think so. So very soon, we have another Godzilla film, uh, and I think somebody. So the person said to me, "Was well, yeah, Godzilla minus one was really great." Um, I said it's a great time to be a, a Godzilla fan, and they said until Godzilla X Kong, until the New Empire, and I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I have I have incredibly low expectations for the film, which means I'm going to enjoy it. For me, it's going to be the best film of 2024 because it's the only film being released this year with the word Godzilla in the title. <laughs> I can't help it if last year's if the best film of 2023 was is seen by many people as being one of the best films of the year that's just fate that's just luck yeah but i mean what you're saying is who among us hasn't asked the question what if kong but with an infinity gauntlet yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the poster <laughs> and I, and I, I don't, like it's i mean i don't know what it really is but it's, it's, it's godzilla facing off against kong and he's what I, he's got that cool axe. Oh. i haven't noticed a a gauntlet. Oh no, no. Oh, yeah, Google the yeah. Google the poster right now. It's Godzilla and Kong is wearing an infinity gauntlet and I don't know why. I assume oh, so that it's cool. actually like a hand to oh, like so some great. like Yeah, like I assume it's the hand to a, you know, to a, a mech suit of some kind or uh, like some kind of, you know, Pacific Rim-esque Godzilla kaiju fighting machine. Like, axe and an infinity gauntlet. He has an so, infinity gauntlet. He's, he's, got, an, he's got an infinity gauntlet on in all, the, in all, in all the posters. Great film? Uh, yeah, not I, I, I don't know why, but like I have no idea. I, I don't understand what's going on, but it's got me curious because I'm just like, oh, well, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, and that's kind of why I want to <laughs> see the film. It's literally, it's literally just like, is he wearing an infinity gauntlet? I think he's wearing an infinity gauntlet. Well, that is, I don't know how to describe it. That, that's what that is. That's right? amazing. That's what that looks like to me. <laughs> I know nothing else about the movie other than the two of them are in it, and he's got this glove. Well, there's that's, a preview now. It stands it out. Looks like there's a kaiju in Egypt uh, destroying the pyramids. Oh no, that's Kong with his infinity gauntlet on. Oh. He's coming out of the sands of Egypt. <laughs> like, I, I, I think I'm. I think I'm one trailer behind. So you're just making this, just, you're just making this year better and better. <laughs> now, if Godzilla minus one wins the Oscar for best special effects, I mean, what can I do? My, <laughs> there's, there's nothing left for me to hope for. I mean, it's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can hope they repeat and say, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I do, you know, before we wrap up, I do have a question that is just, 
something I was looking forward to hearing, you know, Mark and, and Mike, especially your opinions on this. What about the especially silly aspects of Godzilla and Kaiju? And I mean, the concept, it's often silly, but the ones that, that like stuck up in my head that I knew I wanted to talk about when we were going to do this episode. And I haven't even told Wayne this either. What do you make of the goofy kid sidekick Godzilla's specifically Gadzuki from the cartoon and Manila yeah, that, from yeah, that, that was on my agenda you, to ask about Godzuki as well. Yes. The goofy. Hey, it's Godzilla, but for kids. And he's funny because he's small. That, that's the joke. As far as I can tell from both Gadzuki and from Manila. Yeah. I, All right. I'll go. Yeah, go ahead. Mike. You go, Mark. You take this one. for sure. <laughs> so, I can't speak to Godzuki because I, I never liked that show. I have okay. no opinion on it. I haven't rewatched it decades later. Uh, but I can say some things about Minya. So Minya first appearing in the film. I think film, you pronounced it. I wasn't sure. It depends <laughs> on if it's, so it's Minya is the actual spelling, but it's often spelled for decades was spelled in English as Minilla. So like Godzilla, but Minilla. So, but Minya mm-hmm. is the is a more correct pronunciation. So Minya, first appearing in Son of Godzilla as an egg or then hatchling that's protected by Godzilla. And then the classic film released in the U.S. is Godzilla's Revenge. I think the Japanese title is Godzilla on Monster Island from December 6, 1969, where a latchkey kid dreams that he's on Monster Island hanging out with Minya, who can transform from kid size to giant and the like and the kid learns valuable lessons from his experiences with Minya dealing with monster bullies and the lessons that he learns are when you learn how to deal with bullies it, it lets you become a bully yourself i don't think that was the intent but it's it's a <laughs> it's, it's, it's the outcome one of the most hated films but like i said i'm really tolerant of human plot lines that are interesting and entertaining and this one is absolutely stupid and absurd and I really like it. I really like these characters. <laughs> it's a dismal representation of industrialized Japan. I mean this the place where the kid lives and his father's job like working on like a, a crane or something like that and just it's just it's pretty miserable. All that makes it kind of awesome. Jump ahead to Godzilla Final Wars from 2004 where you have tons and tons of these 70s monsters all glommed into this movie, which is like a cross between every Godzilla movie made and The Matrix and The X-Men and many other franchises. And in that movie, Minya actually drives a pickup truck. What? What? He drives a pickup truck. And the, and the hardcore fan reaction to this film best fan reaction, which I absolutely wholeheartedly embrace, was Minya drives a pickup truck. How can this, how could you not enjoy a movie where Minya drives a pickup truck? Because it's awesome, and it, it's ridiculous, and it's in, a, in an awesome and ridiculous film. Uh-huh. So I think those baby monster characters are sort of are the, um, they're the, like, they're, first of all, they're the monster equivalent of those child protagonists that people, that fans tend to love to hate so that all the kids in the mm-hmm. gamma films this kid in godzilla's revenge and the like and they're just sort of they are a marker of the these films ability to range from the from really serious gojira in godzilla minus one you're really serious really bleak to absolutely absurd and um 
it's still Godzilla. It's still a Godzilla movie. There's it's a giant monster movie. The giant monsters are fighting each other. It's fun. The spectacle is there. Just as a as an aside, I remember complaining to a friend of mine maybe twenty years about ago about the movie. It was one of the seventies films. It was the one with was it? Um, my timeline is failing me. It was the it was the it was. It had the Megalon, the giant monster movie, Godzilla versus Megalon. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And there's scenes where the two, they're just these like empty plains, very sparse settings of just fields with little tiny trees occasionally. These are scrubby, so very simplistic sets. And the monsters are throwing each other around. It's like pure kaiju professional wrestling, which is the, I think kaiju poor reisu is the actual term in Japan. So it's just two. Two monsters just throwing each other around. Uh. And I said to a friend of mine, you know, what bugs me about this, the thing about this film is like all these long extended scenes where the two monsters are just like throwing each other around in the fields. And he just looked at me and said, and? Uh. And I said, hmm. And I said, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. the, The capacity for silliness. So, Michael, yeah, you have a take on this as well. Yeah, no, I think that, that, you know, well, first of all, humor and horror go together like chocolate and peanut butter, right? I mean, that's always been the case, right? Mm-hmm. They're two great tastes that taste great together. But, you know, I also thought, in my own limited view of this, Mark, and it's not as capacious as yours, but I always thought, watching those movies, that the reason that the human stories were so silly was because everything from a human perspective is silly if you're looking at it through Godzilla's eye, right? Like. There, there isn't anything we can do that matters in any way, right? And then, so that always bothered me when we see these movies where they, where humans create some kind of device or something that that can influence Godzilla or trap him or destroy him or something like that. I always like, I think that misses the point, you know. I think I like those movies where Godzilla is just this force of nature that is in, uh, incomprehensible, right? And and it does stuff to us just because we happen to be in the way. It's got nothing against us. It can't even see us, probably. Right. It doesn't even recognize that we're there. So I always thought that well, was movies over the years. And yeah. this just reminds me of, of a, a moment in these films that I don't know if you remember, but I remember you remembering it uh-huh. and bringing it up many times. So the, the film Gojira from 1999 released in the U.S. as Godzilla 2000. Yeah. In the end of the film. And the hero yes. is standing on a yes. roof, and I and this I'm quoting you now. Yes, uh, this is I know you love this moment when the heroes are standing on the roof, and the and the the main character says something like, you know, maybe there's a bit of Godzilla in every in all of us. Well, Godzilla <laughs> is in the distance, absolutely destroying Tokyo. Yeah, he's just annihilating everything. He's just burning down the Ginza district, and they're standing here and looking at him, going like. Oh, thank you, Godzilla. Thank you so much. And he's just destroying Tokyo. There's a little Godzilla in all of us. Incomprehensible force of nature is driving my truck. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I do want to take a slight qualm with the idea that Godzilla doesn't notice notice us because I believe in the history of the entire Godzilla franchise, the second best line of the entire franchise is I want to say it's in King of Monsters. It's when Ken Watanabe's character, when they ask, when they're like, you know, he's like, we have to wake Godzilla to protect us. And there's like, you're saying Godzilla would be our pet. And he says, no, we would be his. And that, I believe, is the correct way for you to view these creatures. It's like, oh, no, he sees us. 
in the same way that you see, you know, your hamster. Your hamster, yeah. <laughs> there is how a, adorable yeah, that's over there. There's a scene in Godzilla 2000 that Mark was just talking about right before that scene where Godzilla actually narrows his focus down to one person who has been giving him a lot of trouble throughout the film at some general. And yes, he actually yeah. gets down on his haunches and he's looks at him. Man, I think. Or he's a businessman, yeah, and he's standing on a rooftop. And Godzilla hunkers down and looks at him, you know, and he says, oh, I've never been this close to Godzilla before. And then Godzilla just takes his claw and just smashes the whole building down. But he actually, this is an actual case where Godzilla actually murders one person, right? Instead of just wiping out a city. <laughs> the special effects director of the three Gamera films from the 90s, who went on to become a prominent director himself, he gave a series of really great interviews. A Shinji Higuchi, I think is his name. He gave a series of interviews about these films, and he addressed this explicitly where the, the three Gamera films, the differences between the three of them was the first one was Gamera is, uh, from 95, Gamera is protecting humanity. In the second film, the giant monster is working together with humanity. It's, a, it's the Gamera and the Japanese military mm -hmm. collaborate in this really interesting way but in the third film he said the difference in the third film is that the giant monster doesn't notice or care about humanity it's the same monster but now just not you know, just not paying attention there's a great scene in the film when Gamera is fighting these other monsters and this little kid typical scenario in in older Gamera films this little kid is is almost killed by falling rubble or the beam from the other monster or something and Gamera's hand sort of blocks it. And then and then things continue. The kid is grabbed by his mother and, and the kid's like, Gamera saved me. But you're watching the movie and you're like, no, not no. that time. That was just luck. <laughs> and the whole rest of the film plays out that way. And it's really terrifying. It's it really becomes terrifying when the monster that is you think notices you and is protecting the world. Yeah, it's protecting the world, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be safe. So, right. It's not personal. Yeah, I love this idea. Of, I love this idea of when, and, of when it can be arranged between and the personal, like you mentioned in, in Godzilla 2000, to the indifferent. Yeah. Well, and and that, that that references just your religious thought in so many ways. You know, God is protecting us. You know, you'll watch some horrible disaster as like, you know, I survived it. God was looking out for me. Well, what about those people over there? Yeah. So it's that same yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, that impersonal, like, Yes, he's looking out for me, and that that belief of that kid, like, you know, he saved me. But in the meantime, there's a lot of dead people around. You, <laughs> you know, so mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, the ultimate incomprehensible monster. Yeah. So have we yeah. solved anything? The first Church of God, Godzilla. No, we resolved anything. We've oh. we resolved nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, First Church of Godzilla. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Their eyes were watching Godzilla. <laughs> Mighty Fortress I mean, is our like, Godzilla. Are, are there more? I, I kind of wonder because of the God part of his name. Is that leaned into anywhere? Is there a lot of religious? Because there should be, right? Like uh, one of my favorite comic tropes was the. There's this uh, in the series that I didn't care for, but in the Marvel 2099 universe, he made this point that there was a religion built around Thor and there was a massive resurgence in worship of the Asgardian Norse pantheon of gods because, well, you know, 
there was all this religion and nobody knew what the right religion was. And then Thor was there and he was just walking around and, you know, you could see him on television. So, oh, I guess that's who God was. He says he's a god. And so in their world, there was just a church of Thor and a church of Odin. And, you know, because clearly it was the right decision. You know, I never see a Jesus, but I do see Thor wandering around. If there's a giant lizard wandering around crushing things, you'd think that there would be a church of Godzilla, wouldn't there? Yeah, I, it's the name. It, it, it's certainly not. A, it's certainly not in the Japanese films. Uh, spirituality is played with in one of the Gamera films. Maybe it's maybe occasionally gestured towards. I mean, if you're going to go that direction, then Mothra is the, is the one who has priestesses, you know, <laughs> and people who actually yes. pray and worship Mothra. Um, but the, the the as far as leaning into the name, uh, Godzilla is just a uh, an odd English. Uh, transliteration of gojira Gojira. which which Mm -hmm. simply means uh is a is a combination of the words for gorilla and whale so it's as simple as that but uh, not really and it would be kind of fun to see something along those lines done yeah would there be people out there worshiping a giant monster that's just systematically destroying or randomly destroying places probably yeah (laughs) probably you would think so right (laughs) I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd, so join that religion. I'd join that religion. I just want to say I would join that religion. <laughs> oh, you're already in that religion. <laughs> the, good, the religion of the random monster. Come on. <laughs> hey, that's true. What a friend we have in Godzilla. Uh, thank you both for joining us. It's, yeah. Thanks. Oh, it's right. a real pleasure. Fun. It's a real pleasure to be. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Mike, Chemers, yeah. anything you want to plug? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, inspired by you guys, I actually have my own podcast now. I think I pitched it on the last time I was here, but it's called the show. It's called yeah. the show where they talk about monsters. And it's kind of like Vox podcast, except it's not our show. only talks about monsters. <laughs> we only talk about monsters. And I'm on that show with my co-host, Mike Halakakis, and we just talk about individual monsters and it comes out once a month. We just dropped one about the Ogopogo Lake monster. So getting very specific on this one. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. Cool. So please do check it out. The show where they talk about monsters, which you can get anywhere where you can find uh, find podcasts. Totally free. Sponsored by University of California, Santa Cruz, where I work. And please check out the Center for Monster Studies, of which I am the director at monsterstudies.ucsc.edu. And you can find out all the stuff that we're doing. We're getting ready to start preparations for our next Festival of Monsters, which is going to be October 16th through 19th, 2024. I think it's going to be here in beautiful Santa Cruz. We're not 100% sure about that, but that's where it's probably going to be. And I hope to see you all there. We'll link that in the show notes. Thank you so much. And, and what about you, Mark? Not at this time. No, the, the long process of writing a a history of the Gamera franchise is still a long process. So it's coming, but don't get your hopes up. Assuming that, you know, yeah, no, it's no. At this time, no. <laughs> this is going to be your magnum opus. It's been my magnum opus. You know it's been my magnum opus for long well, time. I don't want to say how many years yeah. now. Too long, yes. <laughs> long time, long time. 
And I can't, it's going to be great. I am very happy to say that. Right. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate you. That's the sort of confidence inspiring (laughs) comments that I need. Uh Yeah, Mav, how come when I see you so often, you're not saying, hey, how's the book coming? Like every time I see you. Uh, (laughs) Then then people might start asking me about my stuff. And then like that would make me feel sad. That's why. I will say that while this isn't for general public, I will say that I'm extremely excited that this coming fall, I will be teaching a course on giant monster films. Finally. So I don't know if this is the peak of my career, but it's certainly something I'm extremely looking forward to. Very cool. So so that gives everybody six, six months and change to apply and enroll in the university of Pittsburgh and take Mark. It's a thing that you've got to do. You can do. I want to. And I can just stop by because, like, I work there. Right. You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I just one other comment about the unfinished book. Wayne knows that it's real. He has read yeah, words. Yes, true. I, I've, I've read parts of it. Yes. Yes. So it, it is, it does exist in its unfinishedness, but it, do, it is not, it is, there are things on paper. Yes. <laughs> oh, do you, you don't have real paper, do you? I don't have paper. I just have, like, you know, Digital landscape of something. <laughs> I'm impressed. If you have real paper, I'm, I'm totally impressed. Well, like I said, Wait, well, what about you? a long time ago. Yeah. Oh, so back, back when people used to do that sort of thing? That's right. It was, it was papyrus of memory service. That's right. <laughs> Wait, what about you? Uh, to quote a good friend of mine, I have nothing at this time. <laughs> Just <laughs> as always you can follow me on twitter or instagram or facebook all the places always at chris maverick you can follow the show mostly on twitter and facebook and you know blue sky when i remember i guess i'm also on blue sky you know so but if you can find us we're at vox podcast you can follow the show's blog www.voxpopcast.com where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week and you can leave us comments on this episode or any other episode you can suggest topics that you want to hear us talk about and if you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do then please subscribe to us on itunes or spotify or pandora or wherever the hell you get podcasts from and do us a favor leave us a five-star review if you leave us a five-star review not just a rating especially on itunes apple podcasts that gooses the algorithm makes us more popular and really helps us out I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.